Okay, if you have Bibles with you, please open up to Matthew chapter 9. So, I wanted to share this um, so it would be on the recording of of today's sermon, Um, but I was really sensing during worship this morning um, just a stirring of prophetic gift, of revelation in me. I wanted just, just to encourage you. So, just a show of hands, just in general. If you have your choice between knowing what's going to happen or not knowing what's going to happen, do you like to know what's going to happen? Or do you just prefer to let it happen as it does and I don't want to know, just go with the flow? Who, who prefers to know ahead of time? All right, that's about half. And the, and the others are like, I don't want to know, just let me, let's go with the flow and we'll be spontaneous. How many people are on that side? All right, maybe a little smaller segment. Well, this is what I sensed this morning, and maybe it's because of all the babies that are here. love seeing the babies here. It just stirs my heart with all kinds of good things. I think, that there, I think that there's some significant changes coming to Charlottetown Community Church within the next nine months. There's a strong sense of there's something being birthed. There's something gestating. It's coming. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a boy or it's a girl or, you know, you know, if it's some other thing. <laughs> I don't know. But this I know. I can feel it strong this morning. And I just wanted to tell you, there's some significant change coming. And for people who don't like change, it may help you just to prepare yourself. Just get ready that there's some type of change coming. Now, I've been a Christian a long time. Most churches, most pastors, most people, they're not real big fans of change. You know, change is messy and we kind of like our comfort zones, and we have things figured out. I mean, how many of you guys sit in the same place every Sunday, right? right? You got your spot, right? Maybe one of the most disruptive things I ever did as a pastor was change the seating arrangement in the church I had. I can't tell you the kind of reaction I got. All I did was move around the furniture, and people had a pretty strong reaction. So I don't know what the change is, but I feel that it's coming, and I feel it's a, it's a significant to us as Molly Grace is to Megan and Steve. Your whole world has changed, right? whole world's changed. Matter of fact, I had this conversation with my daughter earlier this week. She's the apple of my eye. And we were having a conversation about, she's not married and she doesn't you know, have anybody right now that you know, looks like this is a potential thing. So she's just wondering, hey, you know, what's motherhood going to look like for me? And dad, I wonder sometimes, you know, I like my friend's kids, but I don't know, do I have it in me to... You know, to be a mom. And, and so I told her this story. That when Nadine and I first got married, I said, I told Nadine definitively, I did not want to have children. I said, we live in a crazy world. Why would I want to bring a child into this place? This is a crazy place. And, um, and you know, I said that so passionately and so oftenly that when Nadine was pregnant, she was kind of afraid to tell me. And so she cautiously approached me, and much to her surprise and probably saved my life, I had a very positive reaction when she told me. Matter of fact, the month before, we thought she was pregnant and found out that she wasn't. And then, guess what? The month after, bing, she really was pregnant. You know? <laughs> That's what we were excited about. Well, the day my daughter was born changed my whole world. Now, the whole pregnancy, well, first off, the whole pregnancy, I kept saying, my son, my son, right? 
And then my little girl came out. And when I looked at her, something exploded inside of me. Because I had a brand new level of love inside of me that I never experienced before. Now, I loved my parents. I, I knew what that kind of love was like, and that was a powerful love. And I loved Nadine. And, and we had you know, a very powerful love. But this was an entirely new category of love. I looked at this little girl, and I wasn't able to be in there for the birth. Nadine had a C-section. The doctor didn't want me in there. So they brought Lisa out to me. And I remember the moment I laid eyes on her, everything changed. I knew that in that very, I knew her for two seconds, and I would die for her if I had to. Right then, I would lay down my life for her. And I remember driving home from the hospital. Actually, I was so excited the day Lisa was born. I was running up and down the hallway <laughs> in the hospital, and the nurses finally you know, caught me and said, Mr. Zawacki, we think it's time for you to go home. <laughs> Your wife needs to rest. So I had to sleep all night, and I was pretty excited. I'm driving to my parents' house after I left the hospital. You know Billy Joel's song, Tell Her About It, Tell Her About It, right? That song's playing on the radio, and all I'm thinking, man, I'm going to tell her about Jesus. And so it kind of began this thought process in me. And I'm telling you this story because I think this plays into what I feel is coming. This is what happened to me. I knew I had this amazing love for my daughter, and I just met her. I, had an, I would sacrifice everything for her. And then the thought occurred to me, because I knew this was a powerful love, this was amazing, <clears throat> Could it be that my parents loved me as much as I loved this little girl? I knew that they loved me, but they couldn't possibly love me like I love her, do they? And then the possibility just came to mind. is like, holy cow. I think, I think maybe they actually did love me as much as I love Lisa. And so that was a profound leap for me. It just opened up a whole new world. And then the next step was, if my parents could love me this much, how much greater is God's love for me? And it's just expanded this whole understanding of fatherhood. And I've, I've joyfully spent the, the next 29 years expand, exploring what this meant. And so that's what I told my daughter on the phone. I said, you changed my whole life. You changed everything. There was a whole new level of love that was birthed inside of me the moment I laid eyes on you, and I've never been the same. I said, look, my brother already had three kids before you were born. I liked them. I, I put up with them. <laughs> I was happy when they went back home. I said, but it was different with you. It wasn't that you were just a little kid. You were my kid. And there was a whole new kind of love there. And it encouraged her. We were doing FaceTime. And I could see the expression on her face that she was encouraged. I said, Lisa... When you have a baby someday, it will change your whole world too. And so this is what I've sensed. This is my prophetic sense for today. We're going to give birth. I think it's going to happen in about nine months. I could be off on the time frame. And when it happens, the level of impact, what the change is going to feel like for Charlottetown Community Church is what I described when I see my daughter for the first time. How is that going to manifest in our midst? I will humbly tell you, I have no clue. Scripture says we see in part. I only see in part. But this is what I felt this morning. You know? And I wanted you to know that. So remember when I said in the, uh, the beginning of the year, I gave some prophetic insights for the year, and I showed the picture of the leap of faith, right? I think there's a connection between this birthing of something new, of God, that's going to have profound level of impact of who we are as a church, 
Well, it's going to be connected to that leap of faith as well. And so the picture I'm painting is a good picture. Now, anybody who's a parent for the first time, there's a scary thing about being a parent, right? But it's also wonderful. It's not just scary. It's scary wonderful. So I think that there's something coming. I think it's good. I think it's God. I think it has life on us. And it's going to require of us to take a leap of faith and embrace change. So, none of that was in today's sermon notes, but I just wanted to throw it out there for you. Sometimes God will speak to me during worship, and I'll tell you what he says. Okay, so, if you're open to Matthew chapter 9. I've been, talking, I've been taking a closer look and talking about mercy the last few weeks. I've told you that um, if the spiritual seasons have indeed changed from um, what I've referred to as a ruler season to a mercy season, it behooves us to have a better understanding of mercy. So, last week, we looked at mercy uh, from the Beatitudes, briefly. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We looked at Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan as it expresses mercy. And I defined it this way, that grace is getting what you don't deserve, namely salvation. But mercy was not getting what we do deserve, namely judgment. Or as the author Frank Viola says in his book, Jesus Manifesto, grace gives us what we do not deserve. Mercy delivers us from what we do deserve. I went on further to to define mercy as being actively compassionate, just like in the story of the Good Samaritan, that there were four dimensions to mercy. There were eyes that see. There was a heart that's moved to compassion. There's making the effort to help. And the fourth was this, that you do that even if the person in need is your enemy. That's mercy. I told you that there were keys to becoming merciful. And that the key to becoming a merciful person is actually to become a broken person. Because it's in our brokenness that we see the need for mercy. And then we can recognize it in others. John Piper says that you get the power to show mercy from the real feeling in your heart that you owe everything you are and everything you have to sheer divine mercy. I also looked at some of the enemies of mercy. A hard heart. A hard heart that's not been broken. You see like the Pharisee and the Levi from the parable of the Good Samaritan, but like them you take no action. Sympathy maybe, but no compassion. So a hard heart is the enemy of mercy. Another enemy of mercy is a religious spirit. You take no action for religious reasons. I might get a demon on me. Or it might make me somehow spiritually unclean. And so we use that as as an excuse to ignore compassion. A religious spirit will excuse or explain away any lack of compassion. The week before that we looked at The seven redemptive gifts of the Spirit from Romans chapter 12. And before that, we looked at the distinctive of the changing spiritual seasons from what Arthur Burke calls a ruler season to the new mercy season. If you're interested in any of those messages, they're available on the church website, SaltTownCommunityChurch.com, or on my personal website, uh, ThomasOwacki.com. I have friends from all over the United States that have been following my personal website for a while, and so that's, they, they, they download them and listen to them, and, and so they've been following that site. That's why I keep that one up 
updated as well. Let's see. So today I want to continue this look at mercy. And this time I want to look at it from Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look at a few different translations um, of, of the text there. I want to discuss a little bit the, the context of what's going on and then maybe offer some personal application. So if you're open to Matthew 9, I'm going to begin reading at verse 9. You can follow along. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call the righteous. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Lord, I thank you for your word, for the truth and the power that's in your word. I I pray, Lord, that your word would have its full impact on us. Amen. So today, let's learn what Jesus means, or at least let's take steps in that direction to have greater understanding what Jesus says means when he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So we've already heard the translation from the New International Version. Listen to verse 13 from a few different translations. The New American Standard Bible says, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Hmm, a little bit different. Amplified Bible is always a unique take on the text. It says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, that is, readiness to help those in trouble, and not sacrifice and sacrificial victims. For I came not to call and invite to repentance the righteous, those who are upright and in right standing with God, but sinners, the erring ones, and all those not free from sin. It gives us a broader picture, right, of the text. The message, I love the message. Eugene Peterson just seems to have a way of putting in today's language the heart of the text. So he puts it this way. He says, go figure out what this scripture means. I'm after mercy and not religion. I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle insiders. Ouch. <laughs> I'm here to invite outsiders not coddle insiders. Don't hold back, <laughs> Eugene. Tell us what you really mean. <laughs> A New Living Translation. Now go and learn the meaning of the scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call those who think they are righteous. I have, not, I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know that they're sinners. Hmm. And you know what, there's a, there's a new translation out I've just uh, discovered. I'm not sure how new it is, but it's certainly new to me. It's called The Voice. Has anybody heard of that yet? The Voice? Yeah. And, um, and so it takes, I don't know, it seems to be a unique um, offering of the scriptures where it takes, a, it takes a translation and a paraphrase and somehow kind of melds them together. So it's, it's kind of different. 
So it takes verse 13 in Matthew 9 and, and it offers this. Jesus saying, I am not here to attend to people who are already right with God. I'm here to attend to sinners. In the book of the prophet Hosea, we read, it is not sacrifice I want, but mercy. Go meditate on that for a while. Maybe you'll come to understand it. So, I think it's good to do that. I think it's good to take a key text and look at a variety of translations. If you're looking for a, a simple, easy, personal Bible study method, I recommend that you do this. Read the scriptures. Read it in context. Maybe, you know, the whole chapter. And if there's a verse that really sticks out to you in that chapter, something is just, you know, touching your heart, you know, Every once in a while I'm reading scriptures like something jumps off the page and bites me on the face, right? I need to know, I need to know what that's saying. And so an easy way, a simple way to do Bible study is just look through a variety of translations. Read that verse from different translations and you'll discover nuances. You know, some logistical or linguistical, that's what I meant to say, nuances. And it should help you have a, a broader understanding of the meaning of the text. And so I recommend that you would utilize, if you want to do that kind of personal Bible study method, some of the translations I just used this morning. The New International. It's a, it's a pretty good translation that's easy reading. The New American Standard Bible might be one of the more accurately translated uh, offerings that are out there. Uh, as far as Bible study goes. Amplified is a great tool. The message is a wonderful paraphrase. Gives some insights, a new international version. So just reading through those translations ought to give you a better insight into the, into the text. If you want to do deeper study into a, you know, a particular word or a phrase, you might consider getting a copy of the King James Bible, only because some of the more classical uh, reference works that are available out there, they're kind of... They're kind of using the King James Version as their springboard. Now, I've I have probably spent tens of thousands of dollars over the years building my personal library. But I have good news for you. You don't have to do that. Um, I can, there are two free websites where you could probably get a hold of the, the meatiest parts of my personal library. And it's all free. And those two websites is uh, Bible Gateway. And you get a vast array. There's got to be dozens of translations on there. And just with a click, you can go from one translation to another and see the differences on a whole chapter or a whole verse or a whole book. So Bible Gateway is a good tool for that. And if you want to do more study, in-depth study, check out blueletterbible.org. They've got some excellent word study tools. They have a really good concordance interface and access to a whole bunch of commentaries. And they're all free. So for your own personal Bible study, that's a great way to start. If you've never studied the Word before and you'd like to, um, that could get you going in the right direction. So what have we picked up so far? All we, I didn't do any Word study at this point. All we did was read a variety of translations. What did we learn? Well, the New International Version, the New American Standard, and the Amplified uh, say, go and learn what this means. Jesus is referring to a verse of Scripture. He's referring to Hosea 6.6. According to the message in the New Living Translation, that scripture verse is God speaking through the prophet Hosea. 
So here we have God the Son quoting, well, I don't know if it was Father, Son, or Spirit, maybe God the Spirit speaking through Hosea the prophet. So one aspect of the Trinity is quoting another aspect of the Trinity. And he's saying, go learn what this means. Learn what I said then. For, and this is what Hosea 6.6 6 says. <coughs> For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Basically the same thing. Mercy versus sacrifice. Anytime I see the word knowledge, I just gravitate towards it. What do they mean, the knowledge of God? In Strong's Concordance, it's talking about our perceptions of God. How do we perceive God? Our knowings of God, our understanding, our wisdom, that kind of knowledge of God. John 5, 9, I think, is where it says, um, Jesus did only what he saw the Father doing. I think it's John 5, 9. The word saw is blepo, B-L-E-P-O. And it means vastly more than to see with the eyes. It means to perceive with the senses. Jesus did only what he perceived the Father doing. Here, they're using this word perception to define knowledge. How do you perceive God? Jesus had a knowing. He had a knowledge of the Father. He knew what the Father was doing. He perceived what the Father was doing. And here he's saying, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge slash perception of God more than burnt offerings. That's kind of what my spiritual gifts workshop is about. I want to help you understand better how to perceive the knowing of God, how to perceive him, how to perceive what the sense is. Because all of us here today, you're looking at me, but that's not the only sense you're using. I mean, you're picking up things from my body language, my facial expression, but you're also listening with your ears, right? You're hearing the words that I say. <coughs> Making fun of my accent in your head. You know? Now, if I came out and I laid hands on you then, and prayed over you, you would not only hear and see, but you would also feel what was going on. Well, if we prayed and the Holy Spirit impacted this room, you would hear and see and somehow, with some other sense, perceive God. Jesus is saying here, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God, the perceiving of God, more than burnt offerings. Hmm. So, I mean, this is, this is just from looking at a few different translations and doing study on one word, knowledge. I just went to a concordance and saw what that word meant. You can gain a lot of insight that way for yourself. And you don't really have to invest more than, you know, some high-speed internet access and <laughs> a little bit of time. So we also pick up from these translations that there seems to be you know, an equating of mercy with compassion, we see that in the New American Standard, and sacrifice with religion. We see that in the message. So that's just a little bit of insight that we can get just from reading different translations. Now, what's the context here? Keep in mind that this is Matthew's account of his own story. Last week I took time to explain mercy from my story. I shared my story with you, at least that beginning part of my journey. You know, with you. My journey's gone on from there. It's been another 
you know, 30 odd years, 30 plus years since then. But it was, it seemed to be a, a good time to illustrate how mercy was repeatedly demonstrated to me in my coming to know God. Well, here, this is Matthew. He's telling his story. This is Matthew telling us his story. It's his testimony of his personal calling by Jesus. Matthew and Luke's Gospels call him Levi, but it's all one and the same guy. It's the tax collector turned follower of Jesus turned gospel writer and apostle. All three of them are talking about the same guy, Matthew. Jesus said to Matthew, follow me. And like Peter and Andrew and James and John, like they left their fishing nets, Matthew left his tax collector's booth and he followed Jesus. You know, I just can't help but imagine the power of Jesus' words. He says, follow me. And it had to be something on him that was so magnetic to draw people away from one way of life to a whole other way of life. Right? Just to leave the nets, to leave your tax collector's booth and follow him. And so Jesus has dinner at Matthew's house. I love the relational dynamic there. I'm kind of excited about us doing open table. Good stuff happens when you have people sitting around a table and there's food on it, right? Life is better with food. <laughs> Jesus has dinner at Matthew's house. And Matthew brings all of his friends, all his tax collector and sinner friends, come and join him at the table. And so at this dinner, Jesus is messing with the Pharisees' heads big time. Matthew was a tax collector, a publican, as the King James Version puts it. And this is what it means, that he was a Jew working as a tax collector for the Romans. Other Jews hated him. He was the enemy. Just to put it in some perspective, imagine a Jew working for the Nazis at the expense of his fellow Jews. Right? He was despised. And now Jesus is hanging out with this guy. Just their, just their associating together couldn't possibly be any more offensive to the Pharisees. Jesus is challenging the religious order and changing all the religious rules, reg, uh, rituals, and regulations. Those Pharisees would never sit down with Matthew. Scribes and Pharisees avoided these people like the plague. But Jesus enters community with them. He not only interacts with them, he sits at their table visits with his friends, eats his food. I can't emphasize enough how out of the box this would have been for the religious structure of the day. Jesus sent his community with all of them. And then the religious professionals who were there, they begin to mumble and complain, not to Jesus, but to his disciples. Like, hey, what's going on here? Why is your, why is your rabbi doing this? And so at this point, they're not even talking to Jesus. Jesus jumps, he overhears it. He jumps into the conversation. He, he, he enters into the dialogue and he addresses them directly. And what does he say to them? He addresses the issue of mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I want compassion for the broken and for the hurting and for the lost and for your enemies. And not sacrifice, not religion. So how can we apply some of this? Jesus is making a profound statement about mercy, and he's doing it in a pretty significant context. 
Could it be that in a mercy season, we'll see the differences between mercy and sacrifice manifested? Will we see that clash? Just like Jesus at Matthew's house. Where sacrifice was institutional, mercy will be relational. Where sacrifice was about rituals, mercy is about compassion. Where sacrifice highly valued rules and regulations, mercy values freedom. Jesus had incredible freedom to sit at that table. Not a Pharisee in town would have had the freedom to sit at that table. What would people say? <laughs> Scandalous. Where mercy was strict, literal adherence to the rules of ceremonial law, mercy expresses compassion for the lost and seeks to rescue them. That's why Jesus was there. I came not for the righteous, but for sinners. I came not for the healthy, but for the ones who need a doctor. Where sacrifice represented the old covenant, mercy represents well the new covenant. Isn't that clearly what Jesus is communing with, both his words and his actions here in Matthew chapter 9? I don't think I'm mis representing the text or misinterpreting it. I think that, I don't know, it's pretty clear to me. And so like I said at the beginning, things are changing, people. God really is doing the new things, and his ways really are not our ways. Now I think Charlottetown Community Church is an awesome church. I think that we're a lot freer and more on the side of mercy than most any church I've seen before. But I have to be honest with you. We still have a box. We're not living outside the box. We just have a bigger box. We have a lot more room in our box. We have a lot more elbow room in our box. And this is what I think God wants to do. Like birth is an explosion, I think he wants to blow up our box. I think there's a level of freedom that we haven't even touched on yet that's coming. And it's coming wrapped in mercy. The scribes and Pharisees complained that Jesus messed with their system and their structures, that he violated their rules and regulations, that he messed up the way they did church. In essence, they were saying that their religious laws were more valuable than the, than the very people they would minister to. And Jesus said, no, <laughs> not at all. I value the people more than your system. <coughs> Jesus said that he valued people over the rules and regulations than any rules and regulations of any religious system. Truly, man looks on the outside. God looks on the inside. Man looks at the box. What's the label on your box? How is it painted? How is it decorated? What's it wrapped in? What are the, what are the decorations inside your box? When pastors get together, they have really two questions. First, they want to know, what church you're part of. So they can find out what cubby you belong in. Right? You belong in the Vineyard cubby or the Wesleyan cubby or the, cubby or the Baptist or Methodist cubby. 
you know, charismatic, Pentecostal, where do you fit? That's what they want to know. They want to know what context, or what, how is your box decorated? The next question they all want to know, and some of them are a little bit more skillful at asking it, but they want to know how big your church is, because then they can define what, where does your cubby fit compared to my cubby. Is it higher than my cubby? <laughs> is it lower than my cubby? But if we're honest, guys, we all have a box. I got a box, too. I'm not saying I'm box-free. Poof, I haven't arrived. I think God wants to blow up Tom Zawacki's box. I think he wants to blow up all our boxes. Anything that we construct to try to contain him is our God box. And I need to let you know, he don't fit in any of our boxes. He's too big. If I serve a God who's small enough to fit in my box or to fit in my head, then he's too small to be my God. I need a God that's vastly bigger than my brain. I want a God that mystifies me, that strikes me with awe and wonder. I want a God that's incomprehensible. I've discovered this on my journey. At about the point when I think I've got it all figured out, that means I've just reached the limits of my box. And it's about the time that that box is going to explode. Because he's so big. That's what he's doing here. He is blowing up their God box. He's blowing up their God box with his actions and his words. Even more so, Jesus' response to them saying I, that he desires mercy, that God has a desire. His desire, his passion is for mercy and not for sacrifices. They had a whole system built on sacrifices. They had a whole industry. They had a whole economy built upon the sacrificial system. And God is sitting there in their midst and he says, I have no desire for that. Well, I desire my passions for mercy. And he is expressing his passion by sitting at table with these people. Hmm. So, meaning that he takes, that he delights in and takes pleasure in being actively compassionate with those sick sinners, the ones who need the doctor. It seems like the only people group in the New Testament that did not benefit from his mercy were the religious professionals, those who valued their ministry over their people, their precepts over relationships. I tell you what, I don't want to be like them. I would rather be Matthew at the table than the Pharisees on the fringe complaining to Jesus' disciples. Who would you rather be in this story? His ways are not our ways. And like every generation that's gone before us in our attempts to follow this Jesus, we too have built religious structures that have usurped the place of God in our lives. And they've got to come down. They've got to. We would be fools to think that we're immune to this. I'm not immune to this. This Pharisee inside of me that still needs to die. And don't get mad, but you know what? in you too. First step is to recognize we have a problem or powerless to do anything about it, right? 
Hi, my name is Tom. I'm a Pharisee. <laughs> Hi, Tom. <laughs> I was reading Acts chapter 15 this week, and something caught my attention. And in all these years, I never noticed before. This is at the Council of Jerusalem. There's a big issue going on about these Gentiles who are coming into the church. You know, up until you know this, up until Peter has his encounter with them, it's just this is a this is a Hebrew thing. Well, suddenly they're so their their God box got exploded, right? Jesus comes and he blows up the disciples' God box, where they're going to encounter God in a whole new way. But their box just got bigger. Their box went out, but it went to the limits of Hebrew people, Jewish people. And God blows up that box in the early stages. He says, guys, not just for you, for the Gentiles as well. Can you see how God blew up their box? And so they have this big meaning about this. There's an issue. What are we going to do with the Gentiles? And verse 5 of Acts 15, I never noticed this before. Listen to what it says. It says, then some of the believers who belonged to, quote unquote, the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, this is, the, this is the new church. This is the first century church. There are, there's this party of the Pharisees. They're, they're at this council in Jerusalem. They're at the meeting. Then some of the believers, this part of the group, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. From the very beginning, guys, we have had in our midst <laughs> the party of the Pharisees. They were there then in Acts chapter 15. It's still here today. It's just, it's just part of the way it operates. I've yet to meet any church. I don't care how free they think they are that doesn't in some way, shape, or form have in their mix the party of the Pharisees. A pharisaical religious spirit has an almost irresistible gravitational pull to it. It is incredibly powerfully strong. And it's for this reason. Man, we like to have control. We really do. I love to be in control. Why am I a leader? I really like having control. I like it better when I get to say what we get to do. It doesn't always work that way. I'm married to Nadine all these years, you know. <laughs> Sometimes she just gives me a couple of choices, you know. <laughs> And neither one is what I want. <laughs> don't we like control? Don't you? Would you rather be in control than not control? How many of you, and I'm sure, raise, raise hands. How many of you rather drive the car than be the passenger in the car? Right? There are some people, you rather be behind the wheel. Right? Every once in a while, I'm driving, and I watch Nadine's leg go down over there. And I'll ask her, so how's the brake working on that side of the car? I say, would you like to drive? And she's like, yes, I would really like to drive. That's, the, that's part of the pull of a religious pharisaical spirit is a desire for control and in religious and spiritual things, in church things, in God's stuff. It had to be resisted in the early church, and gratefully they did because none of us would be here otherwise. And just as it had to be resisted then, it has to be resisted today. Now, I'm sure you, most of you have heard this, but I think it's worth repeating. This gets posted on Facebook every so often. Uh, somebody passes it around. But I think it's pretty good. It says, when Christianity began in Palestine, it was a fellowship. Then it moved to Greece and became a philosophy. 
Then it moved to Italy and became an institution. Then it moved to Europe and became a culture. Then it moved to America and became a business. The problem is that Christianity was designed to be a body. Right? And when a body becomes a business, we have a name for that. When a body becomes a business, that's prostitution. Right? Jesus is coming back for a bride. Pure bride, without spot or blemish. He will have his bride. He'll build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We will be one because Jesus asked the Father that we would be one. And he is coming back for a bride. And she will be perfect on the wedding day. And one of the ways that we get from here to there is that we value mercy over sacrifice because Jesus said so. One of the ways we will recognize the bride is by her mercy. By her compassionate, loving mercy. That's what Jesus desires. He desires mercy. That'll be one of the qualities of the bride. That's what he desires in us. That's what he's coming back for. What do you desire? Let's pray. Lord, teach us your ways. Father, I sit here this morning and I confess that I'm the worst one in the room. I get this least of all. So I pray, Lord, that like clay on the potter's wheel, mold me, shape me. Break what needs to be broken. Change what needs to be changed. Change my heart. Change my mind. Father, make me more like Jesus. You said that you desire mercy. Lord, I pray that mercy would become one of the greatest qualities in who I am as a man. Who I am as your son, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor. Let it be so, God. Lord, I pray that you put to death in me a religious, pharisaical spirit. Just cut the head off of that thing. And Lord, I pray for my friends. And I pray for myself. Do it in all of us. Change our desires until we too, like you, desire mercy. Lord, teach us about mercy in this mercy season. Make us kind, compassionate, merciful people. Lord, I pray for Charlottetown Community Church that we would live loved by you. And that we would live love toward one another. That we would be merciful to one another, oh God. You do that in us. We ha- outside of you, we have no resource to make that happen in our midst. You have to do this. Because we don't have it. Do that in our midst, oh God. And then Lord, I pray that in this mix of loved, love and mercy... And you would make of us men and women who live supernatural lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
that we would have eyes that see and ears that hear what you're doing, that we could be just like Jesus and perceive what you're doing, Father. Speak to us in ways that we recognize that it's you. Lord, give us dreams and give us visions. Speak to us when we sleep at night. Speak to us during the day. Do it, Lord. Make of us men and women after your own heart. Thank you, Lord. Do it, Jesus. And ask us in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Bless you guys. Does anybody need prayer today? Anybody need some personal ministry? The stuff that I said today, or maybe you came in with needs today, and, you, and you'd like to be prayed for. Does anybody need that today? I know sometimes the logistical dynamics of what happened in this space, I think it's great that we get to meet here as the Farm Center, but, and there's lots of upsides to it. We got great parking, and you know, we're able to gather here together, and it's affordable for us as a church. One of the downsides is because we do the breakdown and you know, tear down and build up every week. At this part in our service right now, we're going to make a shift and we get into cleanup mode. And one of the, one of the uh, expenses is that it seems to make it challenging or difficult for people to have a space where they can receive personal ministry. And I'd like for us to figure out a way where we could do that better. So this is my attempt to go in that direction. Does anybody really want or need prayer today? Okay. Anybody else? Okay. If you want or need prayer, um, meet me in that corner. Okay? Over there. And I will pray for you. And please, if you came here today and you're hoping that somebody would pray for you, do not leave (laughs) without getting what you came for. Okay? It might be awkward, but we'll find a way to work it out and make it happen. So today is a step in that direction. Meet me over there. And... um, And I'll be happy to pray for you. Sound good? You guys have an awesome day.